Well, it is, uh, it's good to be together. Trish and I had a, a, a week with our kids. We're all in town, so it's, uh, it was great. It's good to be back. Uh, I need to address, really, um, when you lose people in your community, that's always something that's heavy. And Sharon Elner, 53 years old, she died of cancer this week, um, someone who's been a part of our church body. And then, of late, uh, Sunny uh, Teague, uh, she was, uh, her life was taken from her here in Hobart and her daughter, Sabrina. Um, she attends our church and she uh, was a part of singles ministry, Sonny was, and uh, I think the family's flying in to uh, figure out funeral arrangements. But I don't know if you flipped on the news or looked at the newspaper lately, but uh, it feels heavy, doesn't it? And you might sit back and wonder could it be any worse? And, and we didn't plan this, obviously, but it's interesting that we'll be in the books this morning of the Israel struggle. The, it's it's the, the reign of good and evil kings. And uh, if anything, when you read through that section, you realize, wow, what a horrible time to be alive. What, what a difficult time and a struggle. I read a quote, it said, that we find ourselves closest to God in times like these. And I just, I wanted to say a prayer for the Teague family and the Elner family. Obviously loss is, we've all experienced that on some level, but especially with the Teague family, uh, one that's uh, just doesn't seem right, right? It just, that just uh, their lives taken from them. So I wanna pray for them if you would with me. Um, this morning. Father, we're, we feel the weight and loss of friends and family. And I pray for the Elner family who, uh, the great loss this week to cancer, uh, but we also pray for the Teague family who, uh, someone else taking her life and her daughters uh, just feels so unfair, feels uh, not right, and God, we're, we're left with lots of questions. Uh, and this morning I pray for, for comfort for their family in the coming weeks, months, and years as uh, they will forever feel the impact of this loss. Father, this morning we're a church body that's asking deep questions just about the uncertainty in our lives. And as we look at scripture this morning, might you give us anchors to hold on to uh, that we can trust in this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, as I just said, we, we are in a series called Ten, and it really is a way to break down the Bible into ten different sections. And there's been some reasons why we've wanted to do this series. One, we wanted to remove some of the intimidation of this book that, oh my gosh, uh, you're asking me to do something only priests or pastors or if you've gone to school read and we want to remove some of the intimidation this morning that you're to be in your Bibles and uh, it's okay to have a sense of respect and uh, a sense of, uh, I want to say wonderment or you feel less than even getting into it. That's okay. I feel that every week uh, to understand this book and so we want to remove the intimidation. Second, we wanted to rekindle your engagement. We wanted to re-inspire you to get back in it. I mean, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
One of the things that, that begins to happen in you as the transformation process happens that Paul says in, in Romans 12, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Friends, this morning your mind can't be re- renewed without you being in the Word. As, as much as you'd like to claim faith and that you just figure it out as God tells you on your own, you're left without an anchor and you're left without a guide. And the Scriptures gives us the character and nature of who God is. And the scriptures promise uh, uh, a deepening, a sharpening, a shaping that, that only can happen through being in it. And so we wanted to rekindle your engagement. Lastly, we wanted you to realize there's a much bigger story. You know, you turn to any page in here and read a lot of the stories in scripture, a lot of times they don't make sense. You hear the loss of life, the evil, the struggle. And oftentimes, if you just read that section to answer a question like, why God, you don't get the bigger story. And there's a bigger story going on. And we enter that bigger story as a community here at Green Bay. And the the big C church around the world today in modern times is a part of this bigger story. So this is the whole reason for our series 10. Hebrews 12 says this, uh, for the word of God is alive and active. Those two words mean just that in the Greek. It means alive. It means active. Active is the Greek word where we get the word energy. It's it's living. And if any of you have read your Bible over time, you might have read passages that you've read uh, several times, but it's like coming across it again. You go, it has a new depth, a new understanding, a new application. And this is speaking into the idea that the Word of God is alive and active. How many of you remember the textbooks uh, and you know the textbooks and the that you were in high school and college that you read once, right? Because you had to. You checked the box and then you never picked up that textbook again. Anybody else ever do that? Yeah, you sold them, right? You tried to sell them for more money. Why? Because the concept was. I just need to understand the definitions of this, and then I'm done and I put it away. You do not approach the scriptures this way. It's alive and active. It is a book that is inspired by God through, as we know, 40 different authors, but has been given to us, and it has a nature to it that is continually sharpening sharpening our lives uh, and, and refining us. This is what he says. It's sharper than any other double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Someone who treats the Word of God as a textbook often has the Scripture here, but not here. As, As the alive and active nature of Scripture, and as we allow it to do what it needs to do in our lives, it will change here. It will change how you love people. It'll change how you, how you have mercy and grace and patience and kindness and gentleness. You see, that's why I've told you before, people that operate with head knowledge about God and are very dogmatic and very black and white and become very non-loving in their approach to talking about Scripture often have not made the connection here doesn't mean that we don't study to know it and study that there are very clear truths in Scripture. But friends, you can know the transforma- that transformational 
uh, work being done in a life because it starts to change the attitudes of the heart. And this is Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. It comes out of our Bible. came across a quote this week that I think is so profound and powerful. It's going to be one of my favorites for a time. John Stott writes, We must allow the Word of God to confront us. You know, often we think it's people that just confront us, but it's, it's the Word of God to confront us to disturb our security. Why is, why is he saying this? Because often our securities get put in the wrong things. The Word of God is to disturb the idea of security. We don't know what's beyond those doors for us today. We don't know. Any idea of security we think we know needs to be disturbed by the truth and the reality of what Scripture says, that we don't know how many days, how many hours, how many minutes we have. It says... God confront, we must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency. It should cause an unrest in how we're living. If you find yourself sitting and waiting for things to unfold in your spiritual journey, it should begin to create a tension in your soul. Some of you feel that. Some of you will feel that today in longing to be baptized. It creates a tension in your soul, and, and it undermines this complacency and to overthrow our patterns and thoughts and behaviors. See, when we're in our scriptures, when we're in the Bible, we begin to approach it this way as a living and active book, book written by God. It should begin to change us. John Stott's saying in, in, in a way that we probably didn't predict it will start to unravel you in some ways. That is very healthy. Now we know that the, the compl- uh, complexity of Scripture, of understanding it, is challenging for a lot of reasons, but there's a couple. It's broken into two sections. There's an Old Testament of 39 books, a New Testament of 27. There are over 40 different authors. There's 40 authors that have written the Scriptures. Any book that you try to pick up that had 40 authors to it would be a challenge in and of itself. Not only that, these 40 authors wrote over a 1,500-year span of time. So not only is it a challenge to have 40 authors, but to be writing over that length of period makes it a very difficult book to just pick up and just start to figure it out. Not only that, look at the different uh, occupations of some of these authors, shepherds, farmers, tent makers, physicians, fishermen, priests, philosophers, and kings. Think about the different opinions and perspectives that these authors would have had. Not only that, written in three original languages that make it amazingly difficult to translate into our English language in clarity. Not only that, look at the different styles of literature. Letters, genealogical, historical narrative, statutory, which means law, parable, poetry, proverbial, You look at all of what's challenging us about the Scripture, and it's no wonder that it takes us a long time as Christians to to begin to start to understand it. I will will confess to you, the more, the privilege I have to teach, that's an honor. It really is an honor, and I uh, I get to study it a lot, probably a lot more than you will get to do that. You know what I find? Every week I feel dumber. Because it's just as soon as I figure out, oh, I got here and this is what I believe and here's what I think and based on the scripture, it's the next week is like, oh, shoot. 
And it doesn't mean I'm, I'm wavering on my faith. It means that I'm working through understanding its active nature and challenging thoughts and patterns and beliefs of, of how I know God. Now, we would recommend here not just picking up a Bible and kind of going solo and saying, I'm going to figure this out on my own. There are a lot of resources today in our world. And we were just talking, I was just talking about uh, denominations. And the, the role of denominations early on in church history had a lot to do with liturgy and consistency. There wasn't, as, there wasn't the seminaries that we have today. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't all the resources. There wasn't an app that every one of you could pull up and look at the Greek words on all these verses real time. You think about what we have today. They had denominations which said, we're all going to do the same teaching, the same thing every week, right? And there was this marching order. Denominations uh, don't really serve as necessarily that function anymore. But what we see is there's a lot of resources out there. Here's two. Uh, the Story of God's Love for You by Sally Lloyd-Jones is a very creative writing, more geared towards uh, younger people. Um, what I mean by that, like your kids. But many adults have found it being very impactful in their own life as they read it to their kids. Very creative picture of the story of God. Um, a deeper dive would be the essential 100 um, passages. Whitney uh, Cuny Home talks about just the, the basic foundational passages in Scripture. I, we'd recommend those. Those are for sale in the lobby. Uh, we try to provide those for you guys as you want resources, all right? So you have a purple card on the chair, all right? Here's the challenge this morning. Black ink, if you have bad eyesight, does not work really well in there. Good luck. Um, but it's a purple color, and uh, I want you to write notes. But we had some people struggling last week about notes. So, again, I'm going to make some college references. How many of you remember in college, this is the way you had to do it. You had to take the notes of the teacher, right? Because you were not getting a degree for your own opinion. You had to make sure you knew the opinion of all your teachers, right? So you had to take notes of everything. Remember that stress? Wait, wait, say it again. Wait, wait. Don't erase the board. Um, I don't want you to feel that in this room. So some of you last week, I could watch you halfway through. Forget it. Too many notes. I'm done. Uh, listen, take what you need to help get you another step closer to understanding this section of reading. Also, we're going to post it on the internet and on the app so you're not like pressured, all right? I'm not a professor, like, going to test you at the end of this. Don't feel that stress, all right? So uh, we're just going to march through. First, you write a two. We can all do that, right? You get that? Because this is the second installment. Last week was the Fab Five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Fab Five, the Pentateuch or the Torah as other terms. We are now in what's called the historical books. Um, you need to write nine boxes. Now, I could have had you write 12, but I combined first and seconds, all right? So there's a reason for that. Our Bibles were later put chapter divisions and verse divisions so that you could easily get to different certain texts. That was only later added. So in other words, they were uh, all together. First and seconds were all together. Uh, because of that, you have nine boxes, all right? I want you to title this history, or as the title to this morning is, The Israel Struggle. So remember I said 
Uh, it feels like today you pick up the newspaper or as I go on the internet and look at like CNN or Fox News, you'll start to see just the, the up and down nature of our world. And uh, I mean, if you want a surefire way to depressed and just not really like life today, you start reading the news. I mean, it's just ugly. You're entering in, I would say, the books of the Bible that are going to paint the ugly CNN, Fox News, ABC, whatever service you'd provide. If they had it at that time, you'd pull up and go, whoa, it is a terrible time to be living. This is the set of books we're going to go through right now with Israel because it is going to be the, this, this up and down nature of good and evil, good and evil, good and evil. All right, does that make sense? It's this historical struggle, the Israel struggle. All right? All right, what are the books? Here they are. So I'm going to walk through these. Yeah, everybody's nervous. Anybody tensions levels going up? It's okay. No test. All right, let's just go through these. And we'll, I'm, again, this is going to stay up so we can go slow. First, Joshua. Joshua is put in command at the end of Moses' life. Remember, Moses is going to have the Israelites wander through Exodus, right? And that's where we get our Exodus uh, book in the Torah or the Pentateuch, the Fab Five. And then you have uh, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are all around that season of them wandering for the 40 years. They're going to go into the Promised Land, but Moses has uh, disqualified himself. Do you remember why? Because he struck the rock out of anger that, that flowed water from it. And so he's not allowed in. Joshua is going to be let in. So Joshua now enters in. And this is the book of Joshua of them conquering the promised land. So it's entering in the land. Remember the famous word Jericho? The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Uh, you're you're going to read about wars. Now, caution and warning. And this is where I say the bigger story has to be read. If you just read the conquest of Israel, it is very gruesome. In fact, you'll read sections of what they will do to people, and you'll be confused. Like, it feels like I'm reading something out of the Middle East right now. And I have to admit, it's, it's hard to understand. And if I want to just quickly give you a pull-away picture, at this point, God is doing the redemption story, trying to reestablish his creation, right? In, in a right standing with him. So who is he selected? Abraham. He has a promised people now. Israel is over a million people. They are the ones that are his. Everyone else are evil. That may seem unfair. That may seem right. But you understand Christ isn't a part of this picture yet. And so there isn't grace for all. Now if you can hold on to that, it might help you read through it. Um, this is the whole section of Joshua. Judges now, God begins to send what they call judges because Israel's going to go through this period of obedience and good times, and then they're going to go through disobedience. They forget. God will say, as long as you remember and worship me, uh, you go to the Ten Commandments, uh, you do these things, I'm going to be there for you. If you stop, I'm going to allow other people other races, other nations to irritate, destroy, kill you, pillage you, and then you're going to be crying out and remembering who your God is. Okay, this cycle goes on and on and on. In one of those, in that season, God will bring judges. 
And there's stories of the judges. And one of those judges, Samson, remember he had very long hair, right? Um, and there's a famous story that way. But also, remember, if in this season of, of world history, women weren't allowed to lead. Women were looked down to, especially in that culture. But God appoints Deborah to lead the nation of Israel uh, at that time as a judge. And so uh, this is the judges' time. And so you have Joshua as conquest, judges as a season of deliverance. But now we have Ruth, this kind of obscure story that just happens. And it's a story of a woman being widowed. And her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, decide to travel to Bethlehem to a distant relative uh, and to hopefully have him become their kingsman redeemer. That means uh, in that culture, if you were widowed, you would go to the next in line in the family. And if they would marry you or take you in, they became the kingsman redeemer. Friends, this is a great foreshadowing story in Bethlehem that gives us a picture of what Jesus will ultimately become. Again, the richness of this set of books, okay? Look at me for a moment. There's no notes on this. There are notes around the world about this. I'm just saying there's no notes this morning about this. There are pictures and events that are going on in this season in Israel that you'll read about in the New Testament in, in certain terms. Kingsman Redeemer. When, when they say, Jesus is my Redeemer, there is a pointing back to this story in Ruth. It's a foreshadowing. When you read about the nation of Israel being asked to be set apart, live differently, eat differently, worship differently, all those things, later, Paul and his letters are going to talk about you've been asked to be called to be set apart in Christ. Do you, you see the connections? So often we forget that this Old Testament sets up so many foundational pictures for us to understand the depth of what he's saying later on. If you were a Jew reading the New Testament, you would have said, oh, I get when he says Redeemer. I get that. Okay, so that's Ruth. First uh, and second Samuel uh, has really the season of Saul, the prophet Samuel, uh, the priest Samuel, who uh, God uses to, uh, to speak to him, to speak to the nation of Israel. This is also the season you're going to see in a minute where God is king. They're a theocracy, which means God-led. But then Israel demands they want a king, a man-king. And so they move to a monarchy, uh, which is, we're going to see that in a minute. But then you see Samuel and then David um, being the king that God chooses. We have first uh, and second kings. Uh, so I just put good, bad, and the ugly. Trisha ref uh, referred to this. You remember the Clint Eastwood movies? The remember the whistle? Anybody get that? Yeah, yeah. Totally. So this is. Uh, I put this here because Solomon being a great, wise king, a good king, and Ahab being the most evil. This is a season of having the good, bad, and the ugly of a nation of that's supposed to be chosen by God, but just in its sin. It's forgetting, it's repenting. You'll hear the, the cycle of the judges. It just, it's so much of this. And this is a lot of First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles is really a combination of some of these stories. First and Second Kings, Chronicles, and Samuel 
all have stories, if you read those in order, they would kind of be placed uh, next to each other and you'd be repeating the same story written by a different person. Uh, and so when you read through that, sometimes that can be confusing. You're like, didn't I just read this? Uh, so in First Second Chronicles, it's a combo of, I think First Chronicles is a combo of Numbers and First Kings, and then Second is from a Jewish priest. All right, Ezra. Now, as the nation of Israel has been pillaged, their uh, the temple has been destroyed that Solomon built. Uh, you'll have the walls being teared down. We're very symbolic for a nation's spiritual restoration. Uh, when they're in captivity in other lands, they get brought back. That's Ezra, is the first return for the Israelites. Um, and the temple is restored. Not to its original Solomonic state, but it's restored. Uh, and then you have Esther. Again, one of these interesting stories again. Esther is a Jew. Her uncle Mordecai, uh, as she's being called into the harem of the king at that time, he says, don't tell him you're a Jew. Eventually it comes out that she is, and she's able, as Mordecai says, you've been placed there for such a time as this to save all the Jews from being slaughtered. Great story. Again, pointing back to the lineage of Jesus the Messiah, as all these stories do, but again, pointing to one that will save. One that will save. And so, uh, beautiful queen, evil prime minister is that picture, but it's rescue. And then last but not least, the second return uh, is the walls being rebuilt. And this is the great story of Nehemiah and how, what is it, about 50 days that he rebuilds the walls in Jerusalem. Quite an amazing feat, great story. If you're a leader guru, it's one of those leadership uh, books you can read that just give you so much uh, to talk about leading, especially if godly leaders. So this gives you all these books. This is the historical kind of section. Now next week we're going to get into the wisdom books. Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, and Proverbs. Uh, now, I didn't say this in the first service, and I, I should have, but I'll say it here. The Bible is not written in chronological order. It's not, it's not ordered that way. It's ordered in sections of books. So the first is the Pentateuch. Uh, and then you have these books. Now, I would recommend, and I don't think we have it out there, but there is a chronological Bible you can pick up and read. In fact, in the, the Bible app, um, what am I thinking of? What's the Bible app? Uh, U-Version. U-Version. Uh, you can set it up that way. And if you do that, these stories are going to pop up all over the place. You're going to go, what? Psalms? Here? And then you're going to see Job here. I think Job's in Genesis in that time period. So I just be forewarned if you do that. Now that's helpful because you'll see how they fit better. Why is that done? In Jewish culture, again, I didn't say this last service, but I'm getting very um, prof professorial and very geeky right now. Um, Eastern history is written different than Western history. Western history is written very linear. When did this happen? Even like a police report today, the way we write it is, is very sequential and needs to be in the right order. Time wasn't a priority like that in the East, in the Middle East, and it was more that the story needed to be told. And so what you find is more of a circular style of telling stories. And they would overlap. They would overlap all the time. So the priority wasn't the timing, it was just that the story was told. 
Because of that, you have a lot of different authors writing some of the same things. It doesn't mean they contradict, it just means they've written with a different intent. Does that help make sense? All right, that was all extra. Won't be on the test, I promise. Okay, so write now just a parallel line down with three different marker points. And I have seven minutes to get through this. I wanted to give you, listen, it's impossible for me to summarize. Here's three key stories to know the whole section. Impossible. But what I did, I felt like the three kings would be a great way to, to realize this section. Three kings. Now, not to be mistaken, who is the first king of Israel? Theocracy? God is. We're going to land, though, in the story of Saul. And Saul becomes the second king of Israel. And here's we're going to see why. First Samuel 8. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel of Ramah, uh, said to him, You're old! I don't know if they said it that way, but you've heard people probably say that to you, right? You're old. Uh, It's not really a nice way to say it, but they say it to him. And your sons do not follow your ways. They actually were evil. His sons were misusing the priesthood. Now appoint to us a, a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Okay, just quickly. So what's going on is all the other nations have kings. All the other nations have temples. They sacrifice a certain way. They uh, have food laws. God has established food laws, worship laws, all those things to what? Set Israel apart. They're the only nation that doesn't have a king. So in Joshua, when you read about the nation of Israel going to conquer, what goes in front of them? The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. That's not God. It is inside of it is God's promise. It's like God's contract with Israel. And that had a a lot of power. Well, all the other nations feared, like they don't even have a king. They basically just have God. And that made them fear him. But look what happens, which, friends, can I say this morning, is similar to us. We often struggle day to day with who's on the throne of our own life. Israel wants a human king. So what happens when they said, Uh, give us a king and lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prays to the Lord. And the Lord tells him, listen, uh, to all the people that are saying this to you, it's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. Look at verse 9. Now listen to them, Samuel, but warn them solemnly and let them know that what a king will reign over them will claim as his rights. I'm not going to get into that this morning, but if you read this section... It will tell you what human government leaders will take from us. It'll take our sons to war. It'll take our daughters. It'll take our tax dollars. God's saying this. God's saying, listen, you want a human to lead you, a human king? This is what's going to unfold. And so this is a great forecast of what we sit in today in our world, no matter what government style, right? We're always victims of who's in charge. 1 Samuel 10, Samuel summons the people of Israel and tells them, this is what the Lord of God of Israel says, I brought you out of Egypt, I delivered you, look at all this stuff I've done for you, but verse 19, but you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have now said no, appoint a king over us. So they want a human king. Here's our first point this morning. We still struggle. Trusting God to lead, protect, provide for us. Don't we? 
I mean, when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Lord, what does mean Lord means lordship, one who rules over your life. This is why in a faith that we talk about here, you don't give part of your life to God. You don't say, God, I'm going to make an agreement with you. You're going to get Sunday, maybe Monday, but Tuesday through Saturday are mine. Weekends are mine, right? You don't do that in parts of your life. God, I'm just going to give you part of my life. It says that you come and lay it all on the altar. You give him full lordship, kingship. How many of us struggle to figure out who's going to lead? Who's going to lead our government? I mean, we're in a season right now. Don't you feel the unrest? Don't you feel in a quandary now? Now what do we do, right? And I'm not here to say what party or any of that. Remember I've told you, vote with your Bibles, friends. Vote with the heart that God is calling us to our knees. Because no person will ever change a country. Because it can't change hearts. No law will fix a government. Because a law doesn't change hearts. Only God himself does that. You know what it does for me? I need to be in prayer more for our country. Not only we struggle trusting God to lead, but to protect us in light of the news we just heard this morning, who knows what's ahead for us and to provide. It's something we still struggle with. Look at the second point here, which is Israel's third king, and that's with David. So here's the story with David. Uh, The Lord says to Samuel, how long will you mourn Saul? Saul falls out of favor. Now they picked Saul, the nation of Israel did, Um, but he says to to uh, Samuel, get ready with the horn of oil. I'm going to have you anoint a new king of Israel. Uh, and so verse 7, Lord says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. Lord looks at, does not look at the things that, that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He's saying, listen, I'm picking someone that doesn't look like a king, talk like a king, have a great resume. I'm looking for a heart. David is known as what? One who follows after God's heart. God loves David's heart. David was not sinless. David not only was an adulterer, but a murderer. You think about in light of news today, what would you be thinking about an adulterous murderer? This this is David. That God says, I still love his heart. And so... Uh, in verse 8, he calls uh, Jesse to bring all his sons out. This is basically 8 through 11. Um, all of his sons, because they're thinking the same thing. Well, you must want the oldest or the second oldest or the most, the strongest or the best in battle or the most the successful in business. He says, are these all your sons? No, they're still the youngest. He's tending sheep. He's a little guy. He's the shepherd. Lowest of roles in Israel at this point is to be a shepherd boy. Jesus will be called in the New, Shep- in the, in the New Testament the great shepherd. It's a great foreshadowing that's to come. Psalms 132 verse 11, The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. God is going to talk about through your line. I will set the king, a new king. You will, it will never be, that throne will never be taken by anybody else. Who is that? Jesus. Second Samuel, he should build a house for my name. 
this is going to be Solomon building the temple and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Through who? Jesus. These are great pictures for us. But what's our point? Second is God chooses by looking at the heart. Don't you wish we could do that this morning? I mean, I don't know how else to, to implore you and to push you and to challenge you to say, so when we do elder nomination and we go through that process, we have to trust through prayer that God is choosing who he's going to choose. And he knows hearts. And it is not my job to know hearts. I can't judge your heart. I don't know it. I can look at fruit on the outside of your life. I can try to see what your lifestyle is like. And scripture says that those should be very consistent. But I can't measure your heart. Only God can do that. I'm thankful for that. And it calls me to what? Be on my knees. Not only for our church, but for our state, for our government, for our world. The last section here is Israel picking, well, uh, uh, getting a new king, and that is the son of David through his adulterous relationship, Bathsheba, uh, which is Solomon. In 1 Kings 6, it says they're in the 480th year of the people of Israel after they came out of the land of Egypt. Um, it's his fourth year of reign, Solomon. He begins to build the house of the Lord. He was asked to build that. David was told, nope, you're not going to build my house. I have a different idea. Solomon's going to build it. And so it says, Now the Lord came to Solomon, saying, If you obey my laws, keep my word, then I will keep my promise with you, which I spoke to your father David about this house you are building. I will live among the sons of Israel, and I will not leave my people of Israel alone. Okay, a couple things. First, if you see modern uh, culture today happening in Israel, the story politically I think there's still a promise that God's not leaving Israel alone. I don't necessarily think that they're this promised nation, but I do believe that God has his hand still a part of this covenant to not leave them alone. But what is he talking about? He's not leaving the sons of Israel alone. We enter into that covenant through Christ as Gentiles. He will not leave us. It says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your bodies now are the temple? Solomon will build a temple that will be great uh, regulation. There will be great um, effort to purify. There's warnings about what can go in there and how you're to worship and how you're to honor and reverence it. But friends, when Jesus Christ dies, the curtain is torn and there no longer is a temple physically needed. What does he start to refer to as the temple? Two different words. One, our bodies. Second, this church. He's going to say the church is like stones being put together. And they're assembling this great house of God. And then he's going to refer like in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. I reside in you. You're not your own. Emmanuel means God with us. Bill Lenz of Christ the Rock's doing this series. We got to see him this week. He and Janet and Trish and I were talking. They're in a three-week series. I, I think I want to steal that series from him. I'm going to do it. Uh, because he talks about some of us are living our lives for God. He says, which is the oldest son and the prodigal son. He says, some of us are, are living our lives to get something from God, youngest son. 
He says, but God ultimately wants us to do life with him. Oh my gosh, that's just, it's the, it's the young, it's the prodigal son coming home. Quit working with to and, you know, from and for. Be with. God says, I'm with you. That's our last point this morning. God has made us to be his new temple. Can you see the picture now here this morning? If I understand the temple and all of went, went in, into being in the temple and a part of all of even being priests, we are later going to be called the temple and the priests. You're called the priesthood of new believers. When I start to read Leviticus, when I start to read all of what was necessary, I get a better picture of what God expects for me in this temple. What am I letting in it? What am I allowing walk into my temple? As God's throne of my life, what, what's let in? Both physically and spiritually. You see the picture there? If, if I'm to be a priest, I should look in the Old Testament to say, what does that really mean? And you would see that the priests set, were set apart. Not out of obligation, but out of honor and out of want a wonder and to glorify God. This morning, you need to realize that these things this morning that we're reading in this struggle with Israel shed light on your New Testament reading that we'll see soon. And so there's our card. It's Saul is the theocracy to monarchy. David is God chooses him as the king that he loves, loves his heart, the Davidic covenant. And then Solomon, the temple is built, and it's a foreshadowing of this new temple, which is us. What's the big idea this morning out of all these books? Do you trust him? Do you, do you trust him? Every week we get a chance to, to respond because the Bible will teach us, this book will teach us that I want you to, to remind yourselves of the covenant that I've offered Abraham, Noah, David, and through Jesus Christ, you have this opportunity to enter into those covenants, and we do communion. But then, once about every six to eight weeks, we do something, this other response, and it's baptism. You know what the beauty of baptism is? It's an outward symbol of you having placed Jesus as king of your life. You see, you might have been baptized as an infant, and th there's no harm in that. That was a parent's expression of the desire that they know God. And I would cheerlead that. I long for my daughters to love Jesus. It's a dedication to do that. But the New Testament baptism speaks specifically about this. That you are to respond once you invite Jesus as king on the throne of your life. You're to say, I, I'm going to go to the water. And the water represents me dying with Christ and coming out new. And it's an outward expression of an inward reality. Friends, this morning, you all are invited to be baptized. If you've been baptized as an adult and you've already made the decision, no need to do that again. This is really for those of you who have never done that and made this proclamation. And Jesus will say, is, is repent and be baptized. Paul is writing, right, or uh, Philip is writing with a eunuch who doesn't understand the scriptures. And once he begins to unlock the scriptures 
and the Holy Spirit makes it alive and active in this eunuch's life. They're on a chariot, it says, in the book of Acts, and they ride by water, and the, and the eunuch says, can I be baptized? I want to express the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ in my life through obedience in the water. You get that chance this morning. And around here, we love doing that with singing, cheering, clapping, hooting and hollering, however you want to make your noise. Some of you didn't dress for the part. Like you didn't bring a bathing suit. We have a shirt for you. You dressed fine, believe me. The water still works. Man, if you feel led this morning, I'm going to ask you to respond to the Spirit in you, moving you to make that decision this morning. Will you, will you stand with me this morning? I'm going to pray for us. For those of you, just come forward here to the elders. They'll speak with you and we'll get you up here and we'll baptize and worship together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your lordship, that you're provider, that you direct us and, and you guide us. God, this morning, will you uh, move in hearts through your Holy Spirit this morning to be baptized? as a proclamation of an inward reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.